Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we'll get an update on the work to clear the backlog of rape kits in Wayne County from prosecutor Kim Worthy and activist Kim Trent, who will also share the news about an award the two have won for their advocacy. And then we're going to talk about whether birds are real. Yes, a parody really had a lot of young people wondering whether our avian neighbors are actually government robot spies. We'll talk about why it was such an easy conspiracy to believe. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. And as always, thanks for tuning in. A few years back, it was one of the most shocking discoveries we've ever had here in Detroit. 11,000 untested rape kits were sitting in a Detroit Police Department storage room. Some of them had been there for more than 20 years. They were finally unearthed in 2009, and that's when the monumental task of testing and clearing that backlog began. That work wrapped up more than a decade later, and the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office announced last year that the entire backlog had officially been cleared. There were two people who were really instrumental in that process, and they were recently recognized by the Museum of the Courageous. Earlier this week, that museum announced this this year's courageous class to celebrate, quote, historical and contemporary courageous acts that have stood up to hate and shifted our country toward justice. Two of those recipients join us now to talk about their work helping to clear Detroit's rape kit backlog and to demand justice for survivors. Kim Worthy is the prosecutor here in Wayne County, and I'm glad to have her with us. Uh, Kim, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning. And Kim Trent is a Detroit-based activist and communications consultant. Uh, Kim, welcome back to Detroit Today as well. Good morning, Stephen. Yeah. So uh, first of all, congratulations to you both. I know how long and how hard you have worked to address this issue since since it was unearthed. And I know that it wasn't just a matter of uh, processing through all of this, that, that, that there was a lot of struggle that, that had to be um, uh, mounted in order to, to, to get all of this done. Um, but I want to start here. I want to go back to the time when we started all of this, when we discovered all of these kits untested and sitting in this in this storage uh, department. Um, what what it meant to you to kind of take on this massive and important task and to decide that hey, we needed to to clear this backlog to give some semblance of justice to uh, to the survivors. Uh, Kim Worthy, I'll start with you. Good morning again. Let me just clarify something that you said in your opening. Mm -hmm. We announced two years ago that the kids had all been tested. Um, We're not completed yet. We still have a lot of cases to go through, a lot of cases to investigate, but our testing of all the kids was completed two years ago. So I Mm -hmm. just want to clarify that. We're still working on this whole thing. Um, It it means quite a bit. uh, You have interviewed me. In fact, you did one of the the first comprehensive interviews on the subject back in 2009. Um, that aired uh, aired on on television, and that was great, and it, it actually jump started a lot of our our um, fundraising efforts. And you really helped contribute to that. So I do want to just let give you a shout out for that, and I appreciate that. Uh, very few journalists were doing that at that time. Mm. Um, mm. This was a travesty. Uh, being a uh, sexual assault survivor myself, it hit home. Although I have to say, I would have taken the same action even if I had not been. Um, these women, we later found out, that were involved with these rape kits, that whose rape kits sat on a shelf for all these years, 86.3% of them were women of color, which just brings into focus another issue when uh, women of color are sexually assaulted, their cases are, are not taken seriously. 
Uh, so that was an additional motivator. But frankly, I just wanted to make sure that all these women were or had, had a chance at justice. Yeah. And really, that's all they were asking for. And I didn't want them to be an ignored part of the criminal justice system. I wanted them to believe again in the criminal justice system after they were so shoddily treated. So those were the motivations. So, so also, um, let's remind listeners of how and why this happened. I mean, th- this idea that these rape kits were discovered in this storage room uh, at, at DPD, it, it, it doesn't make sense on, on its surface. Uh, the, the purpose of, of doing the, the kind of testing and, and investigation that produces a rape kit is, is intended to lead to some sort of uh, other action, some sort of charging or I- at least identifying of, of uh, a perpetrator. So, so remind us, uh, Kim Worthy, yeah. of how, how we got here. Yeah, there were many reasons. Later, as, as you're well aware, we had a, a, a paid study that was done by a researcher in this area named Rebecca Campbell from Michigan State, and she identified many reasons for it, chief among um, um, victim-blaming culture, uh, a woman of color or a woman walks into a police station to report her sexual assault and is laughed at, mm-hmm. scoffed, maligned, literally, back then. And, you know, trying to be, they try to talk her out of reporting. So just rampant victim shaming and blaming. There were also, you know, nine changes of police department leadership at that time. Each person, each chief had their own agenda. So sexual assault wasn't taken seriously at that time either. And, you know, a lack of training, a lack of compassion, a lack of resources. So just a number of issues were were um, identified. But again, chief among them were the victim blaming and shaming culture. They tried to talk them out of it. And I tell people all the time, if you walked into a police station to report a carjacking, no one would laugh at you. Mm-hmm. No one would malign you. They would immediately take you seriously and they would believe that this happened to you and you're going to report it to the police. Just the opposite for a women reporting a sexual assault at that time. Yeah. Uh, so, Kim Trent, uh, this is uh, Prosecutor Worthy's job, of course, to, to, to pursue these kind of things and, and try to make them right. Uh, for you, there was a more personal motivation uh, to get involved. Talk about what, what made you feel like um, this was not just important, but... Uh, a calling, really, to, mm-hmm. to, to action? Um, well, I, you know, I, there were actually a few things that motivated me. Um, certainly the victim blaming. I mean, I, I am a um, sexual assault survivor, so mm-hmm. um, just knowing the reasons that I did not report my um, assault, um, a, a lot of it is because of the culture that existed then, and still we're still grappling with today that does, blame um survivors that does question their motive that, that you know as kim said if there were if there were any other um crime no one would be asking questions and so that um which was kind of writ large at the time because of you know certain celebrities who had been accused of um you know i just saw a lot of traffic on social media and and um you know having heard one story in particular about a a young girl in detroit who um had a police officer a woman no less um not only doubt her story, but brag about how she talked um, a very hysterical and, and, and um, upset um, young woman who um, reported her rape, talked her out of um, filing a report. Mm. Um, although the, she did end up, her mother took her to the hospital, it's a long story. But essentially, to, to see that kind of treatment of, of victims just really strengthened my resolve that at the very least, because with... You know, we hear stories like that, but then to know that 11,341 um, people in this community were disrespected. Um, if you know anything about how um, rape, collect- rape kits are collected, just how invasive that procedure is, after right. you've already gone through a trauma, mm-hmm. um, to go through that and then have your kit sitting on a shelf is the ultimate disrespect. And just as a citizen of this city, I, I just didn't think I could, you know, not get involved. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kim Trent, I, I also want to go back to something you just said about uh, your own sexual assault and the decision not to report it. I think it's really important to talk about why you made that decision and and how common that is and was largely because of the culture that you were talking about um, in in the police department. 
Yeah, I mean, it was that. It was, um, you know, when my sexual assault happened, it was, um, well, I can tell you, it was it was a, a year actually before the Mike Tyson case. But I remember when the Mike Tyson um, um, sexual assault charges happened and just the utter backlash against the woman who reported him. And I remember thinking to myself, thank God I didn't report. So it, it's the police department. It's the culture. It's um, in black community. In the black community, we, we should be really honest that um, a lot of times there's protection of people who are accused of sexual assault. They are, you know, people in our families that we know um, do things, and we are reluctant. You know, it's a very complicated thing because as an oppressed people, we know that black men have really been oppressed by the police, and we sometimes don't want to contribute. I mean, mm-hmm. this is. I don't know that this happens to many um, victims, but I think just in um, kind of the larger picture, when we look at the culture and why we're a lot of times more apt to believe um, someone who's accused, it's complicated. And so um, just having that as a backdrop, in my mind, although I can't say I was thinking clearly, I just wanted it to be over and I just moved on. And I think that that happens with a lot of survivors. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, talking. I, yeah, go ahead. That's happened to me as well. We have two women talking to you right now, and 100 percent of us have um, been sexually assaulted and not mm-hmm. reported. Right. I was in law school, and I believed the culture. I believed that if I reported it, I would be ostracized. I would be shamed. I would be blamed, and I would be that I felt that my mental health at that time, after as a result of this sexual assault, would hamper my ability to continue in law school and, and chase my dream of being a lawyer. So I made that decision as well because I believed the standard fare that that I would become the the, the accused almost. And so, and I was in law school studying criminal law and, and right. all the other law, and I still had that belief. And it wasn't until many years later where when when that changed when I became a actual part of the system. And so that's what makes this so heartbreaking. Even still today, eleven years later after working on this, that these women were cra- courageous enough to come forward and report their sexual assault, mm-hmm. and then they were mistreated again. Wow. So uh, I felt, uh, and the many people that worked with us, you know, Kim Trent and her um, group of black women, um, the Michigan Women Forward, the Detroit Crime Commission, the, the county, all of these people came forward uh, and, and, and eventually and, and stepped up to help. And without all of that collaboration, um, we wouldn't be here where you are today. But I have to tell you, uh, this whole um, scenario was a it exemplified the power of black women when black women and women and black women when they get together to to prove um, everybody wrong and to work together and collaborate to solve it, solve an issue. But we had many other collaborators as well. Right. I'm talking with Kim Worthy, who is the Wayne County prosecutor, and with Kim Trent, who's a Detroit-based activist and communications consultant. We're talking about uh, the backlog of untested rape kits that was discovered in Detroit in uh, 2009. They were sitting in a Detroit Police Department storage room. Uh, In the time since then, uh, Kim Worthy and Kim Trent have really led the charge to make sure that those rape kits get tested uh, and that some idea of justice uh, was pursued in the cases where where that was uh, where that was possible. Uh, the two of them have also been recognized uh, with a pretty important award from the Museum of the Courageous. Um, uh, Kim Worthy, I want to talk about what has happened since 2009 in, in terms of, um, you know, adjudication of, of these cases. Uh, as you point out, it's not just a question of testing the kits. This was also then a question of going back and determining whether somebody could be identified and charged uh, there has been a lot of that. I mean, you, 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 yeah. we, we have an incredible amount of outcome uh, from all of this. Can you talk just a little about what that looks like? Yes. We, uh, as you know, we had 11,341, took years and years and years to get them all tested. Uh, we started investigating and prosecuting. To date, as of January the 4th, we have 225 convictions. That means 225 rapists off of the city of Detroit. Remember, these all happened in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. So 225 uh, rapists in the city of Detroit that, that represents more than that in terms of victims because many of these rapists that were convicted had raped many women. 
Uh, and so the, the victim number is much higher than 225. And so that may sound low um, in 10 years, but again, an incredible amount of work has to take take place through investigation and all of that takes time. So we're very proud of that number. But the other thing I want people to realize is that we also identified over 825 serial rapists within that one project, within one city. And so we have a number of those over 825 serial rapists. We have about 50 or more that I call super serial rapists who raped more than 10 or 15 women apiece. Staggering. Yes. The other staggering statistic is that, you know, you know, rapes don't happen. Sexual assaults don't stop at Eight Mile Road in Detroit. They go across our county, other counties, to other states. And so when we had these kids tested and we got CODIS or DNA hits that went to 39 other states, so there were only 10 states in the United States of America that were not impacted by the rape kits that were discovered in one state, one city, in one county. So again, it goes across lines. And also, we have CODIS hits or DNA hits to other crimes, not just sexual assault, to homicide, carjacking, sexual assault, housebreaking, and so that kind of thing. So the impact of discovering these kids is nationwide and reverberates all the time. Yeah, I mean, all because these women came forward and were courageous. And, you know, I've heard you talk about those numbers before, and each time it it reminds me of. you know, the ripple effect of this kind of injustice, right? Uh, you don't test a rape kit and you you stuff it in a, essentially in a closet and, and you know, the, the, the pile of them grows up. But, but each time you're doing that, um, you are, you are creating this, this incredible momentum uh, toward injustice. And, and, and the things that you're talking about in terms of, the people who have been identified and, and prosecuted, the people who uh, were identified and prosecuted for other crimes in, 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 in addition. I mean, uh, the, the net effect of having not taken this seriously is so profound. And just a reminder that we can't let even small things, uh, small acts like this uh, happen uh, if you want to make sure that uh, that criminal justice actually means something. That's right. And Detroit became the kind of the, the, the beacon call because as a result of the work that we have, were able to do with Kim and our collaborators, you know, we brought attention to many other states. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of rape kits. It's estimated very conservatively that there were over 400,000 untested rape kits in this country. And we all know the big house at the great University of Michigan that it holds over 100,000 screaming fans on any given Saturday. And then if you attach a victim to each one of these rape kits, it's enough to fill up the big house four times. Wow. So that's wow. how pervasive this is. And, and I know Kim always likes to remind me to talk about that as well, uh, but that's how pervasive we discovered this issue is and still is. Yeah, yeah. So, so I also want to give both of you a chance to talk about what's changed since 2009 i mean obviously we are we are not uh piling up uh you know untested rape kits the way uh, that we were before that point but but have some of the other things that contributed to this actually actually gotten better um uh, kim worthy i'll start with you um well we had legislation that passed uh through the the results of a, a, a lot of people uh, chiefly Mariska Hargitay, who is the star of Law, Law, Law and Order SVU. Once she jumped in, that became, she charmed legislatures and leg, legislators, and we got laws passed in Michigan. That means that every kit has to be tested now. There had to be an audit of all the kits that were backlogged across the state. Resources then came in from the state, the county level, the state level, and the national level. Mm-hmm. Um, so we also now proudly have a a system that tracks rape kits that's, that's statewide. Um, and that started with our idea that we said, if you can track a package that comes from Australia or any place else in the world that you order off of Amazon or any other uh, mail company, um, if you can track that and know where that package is at any given moment in time, we ought to be able to track a rape kit through our state system. Hmm. And so we had a, it's, a, it's a long story, but basically we have a tracking system now where victims can come, look in there and they can see where their rape kit is. 
uh, where we can tell if it's still at the forensic nurses, if it's in police custody, if it's at the lab. So we have that tracking system available now. So those are two very important things. And Kim, you can talk about some of the others. Um, well, first of all, I just want to back up to your talking about the, the law, because that is huge. Yes, um, you is. know, the, this will never happen again in Michigan. That is so powerful that the voices of certainly, you know, celebrities like Mariska Hargitay, but really, you know, and Kim is a very modest person. Kim Worthy is a true hero <laughs> in this. And because of the work that we did here, other cities um, have we've become a model. We went from being one of the worst cases to being a model for rape kit um, processing. And, and I just think that's, you know, so powerful. And I, I know that in, within the police department, um, because of some of the research that you heard about earlier from Michigan state and because of, um, you know, adv- um, advocacy, um, there are efforts to better train our officers about how they yep. handle sexual assault, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a, a really important development. Um, and, and, you know, I just think that, again, um, having women particularly prioritizing um, law enforcement's um, positive engagement with women was is, will have really lasting impact in this community. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Kim Trent, I wonder what you make of the the cultural dimension of this and whether whether that has changed much since 2009. What a great question. <laughs> um, you know, I, well, you know, obviously a lot has happened. Obviously, we had the Me Too movement. Um, we've had celebrities who have been imprisoned. Um, uh, you know, so there are, there have been a lot of um, kind of larger cultural issues that um, everyone has had to kind of grapple with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the proof will be in the pudding um, in how um, in the future – I'm sure there will be uh, researchers who will examine the Detroit Police Department in the future and and will know if there's meaningful change in that, in how um, women are treated by law enforcement. Um, But I think that the culture, certainly, um, people are more aware of what sexual assault is. There's more recognition of it on college campuses. Um, This idea, you know, um, of acquaintance um, assault has been um, absorbed and people have a better understanding that if a woman says no, that is, and you have sex with her, you have committed rape. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is, seems like a really easy concept, but has been very difficult to sure. explain to people over the years. So no, I do, I feel optimistic about it, but then I also recognize it's hard to turn on a dime when you're talking about something that has um, existed since antiquity. <laughs> There's always <laughs> been this idea that a woman's body, a woman doesn't necessarily have agency over her body, and it's gotten better over the years, but um, I, I still think that we have work to do. Yeah. yeah, don't get us started on that. And, you know, Tim, <laughs> Tim has been, a, I have to tell you, Stephen, Tim has been a leading voice even now, even with the attention that the work that we have done here received. Even though there's been um, massive changes within the Detroit Police Department, even though Chief White has made sexual assault a priority and no chief has ever done that before, we still have a lot of backlash when it comes to particularly celebrities that are are rumored to be, you know, rapists and child Mm -hmm. abusers and all of that. People still jump on the bandwagon and still forget about everything that we've learned in the last 10, 11 years in this area. It's it's very pervasive. It's pervasive everywhere. It's very pervasive in, in in communities of color as well. And uh, just check out some of Kim Trent's Facebook posts mm-hmm. on this issue. Yeah. <laughs> but we still have a lot to learn. Even though we this uh, this attention and, and this beacon has been uh, shown on this by by people like you and Michelle Riley and others, Nancy Kaffer and others, it's still we have still had a lot of work to do. There's still women every day that are being blamed for um, being uh, being sexually assaulted. Uh, women that have just a hard way to go. Sometimes sexual assault is not even the worst thing that happened to them that day. And we have to embrace these women. We have to embrace, and it's not just men, men, women, but men and children as well. We need to embrace them. We need to give them services. We need to start by believing them. We need to make sure that they have a place at the seat of the justice table and really take them seriously and not doubt them and, and make them be the story instead of the abuser. So we still have work to do, but I'm glad that things have changed exponentially. Okay. Uh, Kim Worthy. And Kim Trent, uh, really, again, great congratulations for uh, for the award and for the incredible work that you guys have been doing on this since uh, 2009. Thanks for being with us here on Detroit Today as well. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen.
Okay, we're going to come back and talk about another daunting challenge that requires new and different solutions. Fighting misinformation and the rampant acceptance of false conspiracy theories. If facts aren't enough to fight falsehoods, could humor and parody be the answer? We're going to talk about a movement based around a fake conspiracy theory that's trying to do just that. Really interesting conversation ahead. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So what if I told you that the birds you see outside, the feathered creatures who thrill and delight us, aren't real? What if I said they were part of some massive government conspiracy to keep an eye on all of us? That they were robots or drones? A growing number of largely Gen Z followers say exactly that. They say birds are all actually government drones sent to surveil us from the skies, the streets, and in our own backyards. It sounds ridiculous, and it is. And that's the point. The birds aren't real conspiracy theory is a parody. It's a movement where the leaders and adherents are all in on the joke. And it's a parody with a purpose. To not just poke fun at, but also attempt to erode the growing acceptance of false theories and disinformation. A recent New York Times profile of the movement says it started in 2017 as a spontaneous joke and then blew up with a viral social media video. Since then, it has only gained momentum and has even become a popular merchandise operation. But it also hopes to be an actual force for good. Members of the so-called Bird Brigade have attended protests and counter-protests, de-escalating tensions while eroding the credibility of the actual conspiracy theorist they march next to. While journalists and purveyors of truth band their heads against the wall, bang their heads against the wall, hoping that facts and data will effectively combat false conspiracies and disinformation, you got to wonder, is humor or parody a better way to do that? That's where we want to spend the rest of the hour discussing things. And we've got two great guests to walk us through that discussion. Dr. Joanne Miller is a professor of political science as well as psychological and brain sciences at the University of Delaware, and she's an expert on conspiracy theories and why people believe them. Dr. Miller, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Joseph Yusinski is a professor of political science at the University of Miami. He studies public opinion and mass media with a focus on conspiracy theories. Dr. Yusinski, th welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So um, I, I first want to get both of your reactions. Uh, as researchers who study conspiracies and political propaganda, what did you make of the birds aren't real when you first heard about it? Dr. Miller, I'll start with you. Um, so first I went out and bought a T-shirt. <laughs> uh, so they got me. So they got me on merchandising uh, side. <laughs> uh, so I find the movement interesting, both from a you know psychological perspective, but more from a social perspective. That this is a group of Gen Zers who are out there trying to find a sense of community, um, and in a sense, vent their frustration with the on what they see as an online misinformation world. 
uh, by parodying it. Uh, it's a, in a sense, brilliant parody. The history is chock full of all sorts of conspiracy theory tropes. Uh, and so I find it just interesting in the sense of the community that it creates. Hmm. Um, Dr. Yuzinski, I wonder if you can talk about your reaction and then talk just a little about why uh, Gen Z is the focus both of the intentions here, but, but also of the, the hoped for outcomes. Well, what I find most interesting is that it's an attempt to change people's beliefs about conspiracy theories by pointing out how ridiculous they are. The hope is that perhaps it will get people to question their own beliefs a little bit more than they seem to have been in the last few years. Um, but a few thoughts on that. One, I wonder if it works. Uh, I wonder if people have the uh, capacity to say, oh, the birds are real, that's, that's really stupid, and that should get me to think about my conspiracy theories. Or, or do they just say, well... The birds are real, and that idea is stupid, but I'm going to hold on to my cherished conspiracy theories anyway, because mine are the true ones. <laughs> this birds thing is just so goofy. And in some ways, this does play into conspiracy theorists' hands. I mean, when you go down the rabbit hole, you do find conspiracy theorists saying explicitly, often, that, you know, there's people in the mainstream media creating conspiracy theories that are really dumb, just to make us look stupid. And right here in the New York Times is an example of, of exactly that. Mm -hmm. So um, in some ways, I'm wondering if it works and what the effect of it might be. And in other ways, I'm wondering if it's playing into conspiracy theorists' hands somewhat. Yeah, I, I think that's probably my worry, too, is that um, you know something like this d d depends on a sense of of irony that m maybe not everybody not everybody has and that uh, right. it, it can kind of reinforce the 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 disinformation or the proclivity to to believe things that that aren't true or or have no no basis um, have no basis in fact I, I do want to go back to this question of Gen Z and and talk just a little about what it is about that generation that makes this uh, important and interesting, Doctor Doctor Yuzinski. What what do you think is is going on there? Well, they are uh, an online generation, um, unlike my own that started out not quite as online. Um, and they're probably an important group of people to hit when it comes to uh, let's guard our beliefs uh, from whatever might happen to be on social media today. So they're an important target group for this sort of message. Hmm. Um, uh, Dr. Miller, you also have some thoughts about the, the, the age group that, that is uh, doing this and is the target of it. Um, uh, talk about what we know about Gen Z. Sure. And to reiterate, they are an online generation. They are the first online, fully online generation. And they are very adept at social media. They are adept at social media campaigns. And so it's not surprising to me that it would be among this group that the simple original prank that started this went viral uh, and that they picked up on it. There's other, another piece of this. This started in 2017, but if we think about what's happened over the last couple of years with the pandemic, um, this group, this young group of young adults who have lost a lot of face-to-face -face connections over the past two, three years now. Uh, this is, again, I keep coming back to the sense of community idea here, uh, a way for them to connect with one another uh, and to be in on a joke that can make them either feel superior to others, which is always a great thing. We all want to, in our own minds, feel superior to others. Uh, and they can share in that, which is very similar to what conspiracy theorists do. Mm -hmm. right? They're part of a community that's in the know, and they know something, and they're out there trying to get out their, what they know. Um, and that, uh, that idea there 
and this is where I think um, Dr. Yasinski is absolutely right, gets muddled, right, that this parody of a conspiracy theory is a group of people who are, you know, sort of in the know, but what they're trying to get out is that they're in the know about this information mm-hmm. and that they're trying to tell, but it may be too subtle. You know, as anyone who's ever lamented the fact that there isn't a sarcasm font knows right? <laughs> that, that sometimes subtlety is is lost on on people. And if I could just real quick get back to this point about whether it's effective, I think we can think about two types of people. I think we can think about people who already believe conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for the reasons that Dr. Yusinski said, this is not likely to be effective for them. Um, but then we can think about another group of, of, of young adults uh, who may be more moldable in a way, um, and this parody might make them more likely to question new information that gets to them um, before they they believe. Um, again, they have to catch that it's a parody, which I think most will. It's right. absurd enough, right, of course. Yeah, I mean, it is, but it is also, it is, you know... It, in the context of the kinds of conspiracies that are out there, it's, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's absurd, but it's, is it more absurd than, than some of the other things that we hear? Um, I, I guess I'm not sure. I know. And that's, that's where I, that's where I struggle with this because like I said at the beginning, it has all the tropes of a, of a standard conspiracy theory. Uh, and when you get to the details, yes, it's absurd, but how many people go that far? How many people read this and say, yeah, the government does a lot of underhanded things. Yeah, they do a lot of censoring. Um, that maybe this part isn't true, mm-hmm. but wait a minute. Right, you're right. They do do a lot of, lot of things that mm-hmm. um, are conspiracies or, um, and could you know, make other conspiracy theories seem more uh, likely to be true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the birds aren't real. I want to thank uh, Dr. Joseph Yuzinski, professor of political science at the University of Miami, for being with us. I know you do have to run to another uh, another appointment, but I really appreciate the time you gave us here on uh, Detroit today. Yeah. Um, When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Dr. Joanne Miller, but we also want to hear from you. Call and tell us, what do you think of this whole Birds Aren't Real movement and its attempt to erode trust in false conspiracy theories through humor and parody? Do you think it's a good way to combat misinformation and disinformation in a society that is awash in it right now? Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about conspiracy theories and mis and disinformation uh, forces that have really disrupted lots of different institutions in our country and certainly have disrupted our politics. Uh, Our guest right now is Dr. Joanne Miller, who's a professor of political science as well as psychological and brain sciences at the University of Delaware. She's an expert on conspiracy theories and why people believe them. We began the conversation by talking about the birds aren't real, a movement that uh, was an attempt to uh, erode trust in false conspiracy theories through humor and parody. Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation about what you think of the birds aren't real and what you think of conspiracy theories. Is humor, is parody, a way to convince people not to believe things that on their face 
may seem ridiculous to us, but that they absolutely hold as dear truths? Uh, or do we just need straightforward uh, pushback and denial of the misinformation and disinformation that's out there. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's start today with uh, Anthony in Southwest. Anthony, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen and guests. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, conspiracy theories, it's a hot topic, but... You know, there's there's one big one that, you know, just stands the test of time. Well, that's bigger than, I guess, JFK is a big one. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, there, there, the events of uh, September 11th, uh, there's a bunch of family members and uh, a couple fire chiefs and stuff who were there at Ground Zero. They'll be suing the U.S. attorney to get their uh, evidence that we have a crime that wasn't properly investigated in front of a uh, grand jury, their arguments will be in front of the Second Cir- Circuit Court of Appeals in about 10 minutes. Do you think mm-hmm. they're conspiracy theorists? Well, Anthony, you know, I don't know specifically what their arguments are, um, but I, I mean, I will say that there are lots of conspiracy theories about 9 11. Um, uh, there are lots of people who believe that the, the people that we have have all kind of believed were responsible for it, weren't. There are people who believe that, um, you know, the aftermath of the towers falling um, made people sicker than than we have known. I mean, there are lots of things about that that, that, um, that have cropped up since that happened. And I think it, 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 is, it is the kind of event that is really ripe for those kind of things. It is, it, it's catastrophic. It catches everyone's eye. As you point out, it is uh, analogous, really, in size and scope and impact to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, an, uh, another event that has inspired lots of conspiracy theories. So I, don't, I guess I don't know whether, uh, whether the arguments that are going to be made in court are conspiracies or not, but I do know that this is the kind of event that has that has uh, created a lot of, of conspiracies. Dr. Dr. Miller, I wonder what you make of Anthony's question here. Um, so two things here. One, I think that the caller is keying in on the, the, the phrase conspiracy theorist. Um, and, it, and it's true that in common parlance that calling somebody a conspiracy theorist is a way to discredit their ideas. It's a, it has a negative connotation. Uh, and in most of my writing, I try to avoid that phrase for those for those reasons. Um, from from a truly definitional standpoint, if we want to get really you know uh, uh, clinical about this, uh, these are folks who are proposing a conspiracy. Uh, so if you want to call them conspiracy theorists in that way, um, then that's they are theorizing that a conspiracy occurred. Now, whether that ultimately turns out to be evidentiarily true, I'm not sure if that was a word, but um, true, um, will, will come to be seen. But what's interesting, I'll come back to this comment that you made about 9-11 and JFK mm-hmm. and why these uh, two events are right for conspiracy theories. And it goes back to uh, why... People believe conspiracy theories in the first place. Um, when big, negative, scary events happen, they freak us out. Mm-hmm. They make us feel like we don't have control. They make us feel powerless. And we seek out explanations for those big, scary events. Because if we can explain them, if we can understand them, we can better operate in our world. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable for us to believe that things that happen, ra- things happen randomly. Because if it's a random event, we can't do anything about it. We can't protect ourselves in the future. So when we seek out explanations for negative, scary events, we're trying, we're we're very much trying to find an answer. And that seeking and that motivation to find an answer can sometimes lead us down the path of a conspiracy theory. It seems odd to say that it's more comforting to believe that 9-11 was an inside job um, then it was an act of terrorism. But when you think about it, if it was an inside job, we, we very clearly know who to fight. 
it's our government, it's people who, you know, it, and it was an intentional act in a way that's not terrorism could happen any place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something that we can, we can fight and we can sound the alarm. Um, and so those types of explanations are um, uh, palatable or um, um, they, they, they serve the purpose, I guess, of what I'm trying to say is of, of, of helping us gain back control um, yeah. and gain back some certainty. Well, and that is that is one of the dynamics that I think is always sort of lurking behind the the belief in these theories. It is this idea that, hey, I actually know what's going on and I have the answers that you don't because you're mm-hmm. believing the, the, the narrative that we don't understand this. And, the, and I think there's a level of comfort that comes from that. And then there's also a, a, a sense of, um, of superiority that, that comes from that, right? Sure. I, I'm not just parroting or believing the things that we're being told. I know better. I've found, uh, you know, a better explanation. And so, um, and so, I mean, I think that's where all of that kind of kind of comes from. Um, again, Anthony, really appreciate the the call and the and the the comments and the question. Uh, let's go next to Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, what's on your mind? Hey, happy Friday. Yes, happy um, Friday to you. You know, I was telling, thanks, I was telling Jake, you know, I grew up on the west side of the state, been a Metro Detroiter for over 20 years now. My family all still lives there. They're not listening, so I can talk about them. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I have these, I said the, the word debate to Jake when I was discussing conversations like this with my mom. And, you know, what I realized is that these are not debates. You know, debates require us to agree on where we get our information. Because if we fundamentally disagree about the, the foundational uh, truth of where good, solid information comes from, and we can then debate the conver- you know the the topic mm-hmm. at hand. We, my mom and I disagree on all of these. I will call them conspiracies that she brings to conversation at from time to time. I've just had to create boundaries and say, look, mom, I love you. I can't have a conversation <laughs> with you about this because you will fundamentally just push back on where I'm getting my information so it's just impossible you know and so you talk about superiority it's like i feel myself trying to like one-up her and and it's like this is so not healthy for me i i i I can't i can't i can't have a great relationship with my mom and also (laughs) feel like i'm trying to prove something to her um there's a lot of psychology into this but it really comes back to where we get information and if there's no alignment there like it's just pointless yeah, so. <laughs> Jimmy, I really appreciate the call and uh, and that insight, uh, Dr. Miller. What do you think of what Jimmy's saying? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> um, that it's very difficult to try to convince somebody of, of either you know whatever uh, if you don't have uh, a common ground understanding or um, acceptance mm-hmm. of uh, what good where where good information comes from Mm -hmm. uh for example and this is why it's very difficult to use facts information to counter misinformation Um, because exactly what uh, your caller said the questioning of that information it never the information itself never gets through Uh, and every piece of information factual information that you provide becomes twisted as, look, that's part of the conspiracy. Um, this is even how, how much deeper, um, deeper it goes. Um, so it's very difficult to combat conspiracy theories, misinformation with factual information for, for those reasons. Uh, again, Jimmy, really appreciate uh, really appreciate the call and the, the entertaining anecdote about uh, your family. Um, let's quickly go to John on the east side. John, I only got about a minute left, but I wanted to get you in here. So I I, list, I watch uh, some late night television on occasion, and it is so entertaining that I'm. It's actually kind of fearful because when. Uh, 
Stephen Colbert starts telling a story and with a straight face, and, and and you just like listen to that, and and it's it's funny as hell, but it's just <laughs> then you stop and say, like, well, this, this is really making it is worse. Not, this really is not funny right. at all. Yeah. No, John, I'm glad you right. called and said that, <laughs> Dr. Miller. I've I've got not long left, but but go ahead and respond. I think that's an important point. I think that's an important point about all of these parodies that. Uh, to the extent that they're making fun of in a way that they're trying to convey the seriousness of it in the parody. But if the seriousness is lost and we're just ha-ha making fun of these silly people who believe these things and not getting at the root issues, concerns that we have, um, then again, they can be counterproductive. Okay, Dr. Joanne Miller, it was really great to have you here with us for this conversation about conspiracy theories. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday when I'm going to talk with author Sarah Jaffe, whose new book is Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.